This is Michael Silverblatt, and today my guest is David Foster Wallace, the author most recently of Brief Interviews with Hideous Men. Um, it's published by Little Brown, and it's um, the author of a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, Infinite Jest, The Girl with Curious Hair, The Broom of the System. Now, the book's title, in a sense, tells you what it is, but at the same time, a bag is over a gentleman's head on the cover, and while the title describes the contents, it's sort of like the contents of the bag. The book itself seems very different, rather that it's inner subject is different, it seems to me, than its ostensible subject. Is this true? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hmm. Other than liking the color of the cover, I have nothing to do with the cover. Um, it, the book has the title it does because I like that title, and the greatest number of pages of the book are given over to things called brief interviews with hideous men, and then at a certain level, the interviews begin playing off of and stitching together various other elements in the book. Um, I get to ramble on this answer because the question was very hard. Part of the book consists of short stuff that I had written um, kind of independently of anything else and then wanted to collect. And, uh, and another part of the book is supposed to be dwell in that weird area between novel and short story collection. And um, it really wasn't until uh, fairly late in the game when the editor, um, this is the third this is the third book that Michael Peach has been the editor on with me, and he's got a lot of credibility with me when he started working on order, you know, and what to take out and what to put in. I sense, though, that there's a philosophical procedure going on in the book, not in the pieces themselves, but in the space between them, in the area they structure around them. And unless I was hallucinating, I began to feel that, I don't know, a post-something or other, post-personal, post-apocalyptic philosophy psychology was evolving in this book. Well, I, golly. Um, Four different sections of the book consist of long compilations of these interviews, and the interviews the interviews are um, conducted by a female, whom you never see um, and and you never hear uh, when she asks questions. It's represented just by a, a journalistic um, capital Q. The thing that um, and it's primarily the interviews that were written with with an eye toward making a book out of them. And, and the thing that I was most interested in was, um, I mean, I was far more interested in the interlocutor than in the people who were speaking. I, I, I don't know that I expect a reader to be because the ways in which the, the interlocutors developed are very oblique and very, um, um, she, I, I mean, she's defined, she's defined almost exclusively through what she, in her transcription process, allows men to, to direct toward her. Um, and so it all it's it, it all gets it all gets very sort of complicated. But but meanwhile, while I was concentrating on, on this woman, this sort of um, fairly dark and in some in some instances um, predatory and evil collection of kind of male voices and male attitudes and male um, 
dimensions and meta dimensions of self-consciousness and the stuff they were saying to her started coming out and and by the second and third drafts I was also getting interested in 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 those voices I don't know I don't know that I intend the book to have um, to have a psychology um, it certainly doesn't have an ideology which is something that I've started to get nailed for in interviews a little bit yeah it has a fair amount to do with sex it has a fair amount to do with heterosexual male attitudes and orientations toward heterosexual females. Um, but as far as I can tell, that's just kind of a, a unifying principle for something that's just sort of about loneliness, which is, as far as I can see, everything that I write ends up being about that. So that's, that's my attempt at, at an answer to that question. I'm talking to David Foster Wallace about brief interviews with hideous men. The subject, though, of the absence of a mirror comes into the book partially because the interviewer is not present. We just see her letter Q and you get these answers and this subject of interpersonality or reflection, there's a retelling of Narcissus and Echo in the book. There's a terrifying twin moment at the end of the book where um, Samson-like hair is being shorn not by Delilah but by a boy's mother who sees his face replicated by his twin brother who's grimacing in imitation of the boy's fear and pain and it's very much a complicated picture of the book itself because fear and pain and parody exist hand in hand in the book itself. So I wanted to ask you about this mirror theme. I can I can give you a couple ideas that occur to me about the subject. I'm not I'm not certain of the extent to which they apply they they apply to the book. I'm a I'm a heterosexual male who's who's never been married but has been in, you know, one of these serial monogamy type thing. I'm 37. I I've, I've been out there. All right. Um, and and I and I know men and I know women and I I know myself and I'm 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 interested I'm interested in in misogyny and I'm interested in hostilities um, both political and sort of emotional between males and females I don't know that I'm interested in them for the reasons that a, a whole lot of other people are interested in them I mean it's a it's a huge sort of cultural locus right now. Um, for instance, I found I, I found really interesting stuff in Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, which is a very pop book. In which, anyway, um, my guess is that um, is that a certain amount of misogyny, and I'm just talking about straight white male sneery um, ob- objectification of women. Your classic pre-feminist Neanderthal knuckle-dragging male thing is rooted is rooted almost a hundred percent in fear, and that it, but that it's a weird kind of fear. Um, it's got something to do with um, with I think American males' self-definition being very precarious, um, being being um, extraordinarily focused on sex and sex stuff and I think for, for all for all the talk in our culture about um, 
women being objectified, being the object of a certain kind of gaze, I, I don't think very much gets talked about in terms of, of um, men's terror of women's judgment of them, and not just judgment of them sexually, but judgment of them existentially, uh, humanistically, and that in, in, in a whole lot of cases, um, the, reason, the reason it's very tempting to, to objectify women or to use any of the any of the very kind of standard unoriginal male withdraw and don't deal with women tactics is that the idea of being of being perceived and judged um, by 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 the other by, by another subjectivity is is incredibly horrifying and um, I'm not pretending that any of this is original and you know you can you can read really interesting descriptions of the kind of anti-Semitism that led to the Holocaust in sort of the same terms. I mean, the, our, the instinct to dehumanize the other, the instinct to, to turn the other into a means rather than an end is, I can't defend it, but for me it seems like it's what a tremendous amount of our, of, of our cultural flux and our cultural pain is about. And uh, I, I should say, it's not, I'm, I'm not describing to you stuff that was in my head when I was doing this. This is kind of the, the, the post-game, you're asking interesting questions and I'm answering them. It's, it's um, very, much, very much, I just sort of heard these guys and, I, and I, heard, I heard these guys through the sensibility of a particular kind of woman who, who was very real to me but didn't, but didn't exist and I couldn't see her and I couldn't hear her and it was very strange. And that's really much more of the truth. It's just that's not, that's not an interesting answer. Well, yeah. when, I, when I say that the book is in a way post-personal, I, I, I do feel that this character and all the characters exist and don't exist. And their talk is both an accurate depiction of a kind of talk and an abstraction of that kind of talk and a parody of that kind of talk and the, the virtue of the book seems to be that in tickling the funny bone as they say it arouses pain or avoidance anxiety or a kind of need out of repulsion to get away from the tickler that there's a complicated kind of reader response being called forth by the book. It's even more <laughs> complicated than I was just rambling about before because of course these guys are speaking to a woman whom they give every indication of knowing is a is a kind of feminist journalist or essayist, and so they're very rhetorically self-conscious too. Um, I wanted to do a book that was sad, and I, I wanted to do a book that um, that had more to do with the kind of cla conventional love storyish male female parent child stuff. I, it's something I tried to do on Infinite Jest, and everybody thought that book was very funny, which is of course nice and. Um, but it was also kind of frustrating, and I think this one, I, I designed this one so that no, nobody is going to escape <laughs> the fact mm -hmm. that this is sad. Um, but, but there is in this book um, a kind of personal sadness that's being, that's constantly afraid of being accused of pretentiousness. In fact, it, it seems that in a particular story, which I liked very much, called Church Not Made With Hands, um, that there's a deliberate goad to the reader, the presentation of a writing that is simultaneously very poetic and at the same time intentionally prof 
pretentious or portentous, and that feeling it's being recognized is being reached by risking or enduring or even floating past portentousness, and that poetry doesn't matter really either, that there's some kind of liquid emotion in this story that the space between its styles and its dangers is trying to evoke. I doubt, I doubt that any, any period of writing fiction is any harder or less hard than any other. But it feels, of course, because I'm writing it, it feels like this is an unprecedentedly hard time to do this. And it's particularly hard, at, at least for me, as I get older and I get far less interested in intellectual stuff and far more interested in precisely the kind of stuff that I'm, that, that, that I've, I have a horror of and I've been trained to have a horror of and that's and that sentimentality and that's strong um, and that strong emotion and that's um, uh, didacticism, pretentiousness. Um, commercialism. Commercialism. I mean, commercialism, I think, is the initial bite of the apple that pollutes it, but I think it's now become a cultural engine. I'm trying to think of the example of... Um, I'm trying to think of an example of... Um, for instance, imagine, imagine I'm home and I'm listening, I'm listening to the radio and maybe I'm listening to your show and maybe I'm listening to an author on who I think is just being a raging a-hole and a pretentious, you know, whatever. And I'm thinking how self-centered he is and how, how much he's trying to impose a vision of himself on the listener. Well, here's the 99, 1999 element of this for me is really, if I stop and I'm honest with myself for a moment, the only difference between, hopefully, this is in, this, the only, hopefully the only difference between me and that author is that I am somewhat more cunning. That is, I'm so, um, uh, for instance, in a story, I'm so horrified, I think, of the reader having certain reactions that I regard as prima facie just intolerable. If the guy thinks I'm an obtuse, pretentious dweeb, I'm, I'm dead. Um, the, the, the story's dead. Any possibility of interaction between the two of us is dead. But also on a less romantic level, I myself, Dave, personally um, am, am dead. And so there's a certain amount of, of um, I, I think some of what's uncomfortable for people about my stuff the last couple of years has been that it's very much like watching somebody kind of reach out for and recoil from something at the same time. I, um, I, I do want to do stuff that, that's, that's, that's moving and I want to do stuff that, that, that feels important and that feels important to me. And on the other hand, I'm scared poopless of it. I'm assuming I can't say four-letter words. Better not to. Okay, poopless then, scared poopless. Um, and uh, in my own defense, I think it's just, it's a very tricky rhetorical time for for, for any but the most either commercially manipulative writer on one hand or the most pointy-headed, brilliant, temporal lobe intellectual writer on the other is because I'm not any different from anybody else. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a time in America when we're intensely self-conscious in, in terms of our presentation and in terms of other people's analysis of us and the sophistication of that and our awareness of their awareness of our awareness that they're interpreting. And yeah, it can all get kind of clangbirdish, but it's also, um, um, it also seems to me to be very sad. <laughs> well, for me, as, as I proceeded in the book, there was, at the beginning, there's the sense of 
stories beginning because they can and see where they go, almost like, you know, an improvisation. Like and what ones start like that? Well, um, the first story um, or the diving board story. Okay. Ju- just to, you know, get it. And then these stories start to revolve styles accrete around them. There are tones within tones and and what seems complicated, it reminds me, I remember saying to you about Infinite Jest that they're in the middle of that hilarious game of worlds war game at the boys' school. There's a child tasting snow on his tongue and there's something heartfelt and achieved because what surrounds it has become so complicated. Mm. Here, it felt as if in reading these stories with eyes wide open, I was being asked to revolve so much that I would get dizzy and that in the fall, in the dizziness, a kind of compelling sadness, that the sadness is itself formed by the obligation to have no stable position, that everything has to spin on itself until a kind of weariness, attrition, ecstasy, exhilaration, humor, terror become compounded and the emotion bomb, as the therapist says, left in the reader. Wow. You're, you're giving, I mean, this is why I look forward to coming to L.A. is you, you tend to give interpretations of the stuff that's real close to, to you know, to, to, to what I want. Um, for me, the great, fa- the, the great fantasy wish is that in, in complication and in layer upon layer of, of sort of excruciatingly, um, you know, detailed jot and tittle, you know, psychological mirrors staring at each other stuff, it, it, within all that stuff, there's, there's the possibility for, for, for great and profound, you know, emotional and spiritual and, you know, and existential affect. I, I worry, you know, I, I, as a fiction writer, I worry sometimes that, um, that there isn't, that I'm, just, that I'm just kidding myself and that, in fact, what it is is I'm wedded to a certain style that allows me to use certain things I'm good at and to play a whole lot of games and whatever. So um, it, it's nice to hear you say that. I'm also, I'm, I'm also aware that there are readers who are not going to have that reaction, that there are readers who are going to see this as a, as a book by a technician and a, and a cold book. Um, and a book that's being mean to just about everybody that it's possible to be mean to. Um, and one of the weirdnesses about coming out here and, and <laughs> coming out of the borough and talking to people about this is I, was, I could fairly well predict, because I know you read stuff a bunch of times, and you're a good, you're a good reader, and our tastes are similar. I, I, this I wasn't too worried about, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to talk to people who don't have that reaction at all, and I'm not deep down sure which one is, which one is right. Now, that is a question that I, I, I wanted to talk to you about because something happened between my generation and yours. I remember back when stories that seemed to goad a deliberate hate response from me, which were usually called black humor 
and were usually written by people like Terry Southern, Bruce J. Friedman, um, a kind of celebration of obviously hideous values meant to make the reader usually sneer in complicity with the writer. Here, the complicity has become very complicated because it's so interesting. As I was reading, I was saying, okay, who is, who is speaking here? Who has made this person speak? And why would a writer want to give voice to so many anathematic attitudes, given that the world is full of them, given that these are all attitudes that exist, the author is choosing to populate a book with attitudes that any sane person would hate. Why? Most of the voices, at least for me, um, even the most misogynistic ones, have elements of... um, of fear and insecurity and loneliness um, that that I identify with. I mean, a, a couple of these are very close to some stuff that that I have done and said in my career. That particularly, there's some really craven breakup monologues, where you know, baby, you're quitting your job and moving out here has I put so much pressure on me that I can't stand it, and now I need you to move back out. Kind of charming stuff I did in my twenties. Um, but th- those guys are the small potatoes. I mean, it, it gets it gets very, very dark. It, if it works at all, these guys are not freaks, and the show isn't real people, and they're not monsters for for me to set up. And 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 the reader and I join in pointing at them and going, "Ew, we're so glad we're not like that." I mean, that that stuff's dead. I mean, uh, I I recognize myself in almost every speaker in there and it doesn't mean that that speaker's beliefs are mine or that the um the speaker's way of representing himself is mine but um the the last the last interview in there is the longest one and it's by a it's by a guy kind of having to confront his his views about a, a new age person who tells him a story about get avoiding getting killed by a serial killer that um that for me was the most upsetting part of the book tour. I think it's the best of the interviews, but it's very upsetting because I realized that even though I would disavow proposition by proposition everything this guy says, I also identify an enormous amount with the guy. And so a, a, certain, a certain amount of the interviews, and you know, this will horrify some readers if they've read the, a certain amount of the interviews are really kind of stuff about me, my hope. Um, and I think Little Brown's hope is that there's su- there's sufficient low sigh of identification on the part of the reader that it won't just be, you know, Dave Dave doing some veiled confession and see if he can, seeing if he can gross people out. Well, for me, it's a very complicated effect, and I can only describe its effect on me. Almost all of those speakers were emanations of a spirit that I don't want to be but have tendencies in common with. As a result, as they accumulate, and in addition to the interviews, there are short stories that sort of reflect the interviews, conceptualize upon views offered by them, um, bring them to logical or preposterous extremes. And the feeling was that in this tornado country, there is no stable way to live. So I found myself feeling that every person becomes like a, a one-person ghost town. 
um, that the reader is kind of put in this really unstable position, not just we have not lived the right life and there is no right life to live, but some other kind of realization that there is no moral underground and that identification has become in complicated ways impossible. I don't think the book has an ideology, but I think there are things about the book that are symptomatic of a particular kind of of complication that's that's potentially pernicious, which is, you know, when you talk about um, there, there's no kind of moral underpinning right now, I, I guess I would respond that particularly, particularly in male-female relationships um, where, where very often you get um, the, the, the richest and darkest psychic truths are delivered through jokes or very loudish stuff that you almost see on cable TV where the big thing, um, uh, how to appear sensitive in the 90s, you know, like, uh, the, the 90s skirt chaser now has to affect the kind of Alan Alda, Alan Alda-ish sensitivity and almost androgyny as opposed to the machismo of 15 years ago, all that kind. Um, th- this idea of not that there's not that there's no moral underpinning, but that everything is rhetoricized and everything has an element of presentation and interpretation and sales pitch and this metal chess where before I say the thing, I already scan and triage your possible responses to it and my responses to that responses and the portraits we're going to get of each other from what we're going to say, such that um, one reason why I, who have reasonably strong moral beliefs, would never, in a radio show like this, promulgate them, is because half of me is split off and floating, is appallingly aware of what I am going to come off to your listeners as looking like, should I promulgate moral beliefs, <laughs> which, is, which I do not think vacuums our universe out of the possibility of moral belief, but it puts a spin on things that I... I'm not a great historian, but as far as, as far as I can see, not since the sophists, you know, um, in, in Athens, has there been this, this rapacious and effective and widespread rhetoricizing and performance and, and review and me watching you, watching me, watching you type um, metastasis, you know, in, in a vibrant culture. Um, and, and that, I think, um, in, in a small way is interesting and in a large way is a tremendous engine of, of, of loneliness and it's something that, that I think we as a culture are going to have to find to find a way to deal with. There, that was almost an earnest moral statement and I feel better for having made it. <laughs> I've been speaking to David Foster Wallace about his collection, book, Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, published by Little Brown. Um, I think it's an, you know, it's one of those books that compels elaborate response, and I'll be rereading it, I think, a lot. And thank you for coming. Oh, thank you. My associate producer is Melinda Siegel.